Welcome to Black Executive Podcast, where we share inspiration and actionable advice for Black creatives going pro. I'm your host, Jazz. With each episode, we'll chat with Black creatives thriving in entrepreneurship, corporate careers, and the nonprofit sector, all while building a network of Black creatives, six head nods apart. Enjoy the show, where the dreamers become doers and the aspiring become inspired. Let's get started. What's up, y'all? Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today, we're talking to designer, creative director, and Blacktivist, Natalie Brown. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Y'all, I've had the pleasure of collaborating with Natalie in a corporate space, which is an experience in itself Um, because Natalie is super badass. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just grateful to have you, you know, on the show. I have the opportunity to chat about your experiences as a Black creative and a Black activist, especially being in corporate America, because a lot of times it feels like those two things cannot coexist, but they do. You show they do, and you do them both very well. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so let's get right into it. Let's just kind of start off with how you got into design, and we'll just kind of pivot into more of your activism and corporate work. So how did you get into design, and what is your background? Yeah, I am actually 100% self-taught in design. I got introduced to it through... A college out here. So I'm from Atlanta, um, born mm-hmm. and raised, been out here my whole life. And there's a popular school in Georgia called Savannah College of Art and Design. And when I was in high school, they had like the summer program for the arts. And so I was like really into fashion at the time and thought I wanted to do fashion design. So I applied to the program for fashion design specifically and got accepted for that. And so I found out once I got accepted, we had to pick a secondary area of like study, you could say. And so I picked photography as my, I guess, minor for that program. And when I got there, I realized that I hated fashion design and I was (laughs) in photography. It was just too much work. It was too much, all the clothes and it's just, I hated it. And so, and then photography sparked, sparked my attention. And so after that program, I invested in a camera, started taking pictures of my friends in school, you know, and um, long story short, just over the years, you know, I just paid my way through college, doing photography, got better and got introduced Mm -hmm. to photo editing. And through editing photos, I got introduced, you know, to Photoshop and then just this concept of design. So while I was in college, I continued doing photography. It's kind of what I was known for around campus at UGA. And I spent most of my time, whenever I wasn't in class or working or studying, I was on YouTube or, well, and playing around with Photoshop, just learning design and learning, you know, how colors and fonts and types play together, you know, and just this concept of design. So I Mm -hmm. got like my first official client in 2012 and have been just learning and growing and improving ever since that. So even to this day, I've never had any professional training. It's just kind wow. of more so about just me being inspired by everything around me. And, you know, just over time, as you continue to do things and, you know, you get more acquainted and you learn more avenues and you get to grow. And my background's in marketing. So I think that's been helpful for me because I've been able to approach design with a marketing eye 
And that's something mm-hmm. that I don't always notice in designers who have like their degree in design. There's, it's been an interesting thing. So yeah, that's my introduction to design. I've been able to work with a bunch of different cool brands. Um, let's see. I've done some stuff with McDonald's was the first big brand that I worked really the first brand oh, wow. that I worked with. Yeah. McDonald's. So I, I, my mentor, my former mentor, she at the time had a marketing agency and their clients were, so but their clients were McDonald's and Coke, but we focused on black consumers in the Southeastern region of the U S. So our mm-hmm. whole job was to market to black people in the Southeast with, um, for McDonald's and Coke. So Say, for instance, if you go like to McDonald's restaurants in more urban environments, you may notice. Well, this was years ago. I don't know what they do now. But at the time, you would notice that those restaurants had more of a warm tone, warm tone, more of like, you know, warm colors and more of like a homey feel mm. to cater to the black audience. So yeah, there were like a lot of golds, a lot of warm reds, warm greens, a lot of things that you'll see like at Essence Fest, but even just like black colors that was intentional to cater to mm-hmm. a black audience, even messaging and stuff like that. So that was really my introduction to design and marketing. And then did a lot of stuff with Chick-fil-A and then a lot of stuff with a lot of black hair care product companies. So one of my clients, they own um, Originals, Aunt Jackie's, uh, there are a couple okay. other, I forget, like hair products. So I've done a lot of like their packaging design and stuff. So, like if you go to beauty supply stores, you might see my work. <laughs> yeah and then some smaller businesses that's all I can remember off the top of my head I've done some stuff with like some sororities and yeah it's been cool that does that's way more than I like I thought I knew what you did like that's super dope you do a lot of cool stuff like okay so knowing that you have like you have the opportunity to work with all these brands and these different businesses and stuff what made you decide to go like full-time corporate and not just be like 100% freelance I fell into it um Mm -hmm. well actually I don't know that I ever cared to do freelance full-time because let's see my first job out of college Yeah, I feel like I fell into it because Mm -hmm. I think I was trying to go a marketing route and I wasn't really thinking about doing design full time. And my career just ended up evolving into doing design in the corporate space. And Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever thought about doing freelance, but I also think I desired to do it because for one, I'm the kind of person who likes security like I'm not that person who's just gonna drop everything mm-hmm. and pursue this entrepreneurship career you know because even though I was making good money I wasn't doing any business development actually to this day 100% of my business has all been word of mouth and referral based I've never marketed myself so that mm. development part of freelancing I probably suck at it because I've never had to do it <laughs> so I know when it mm-hmm. comes to being a freelancer and doing design full-time I haven't put in that work and yeah, I haven't done that. So that's probably why I've been doing it. But I also, my mindset always changes and I probably, I know there was a point where I was determined to be like a chief creative officer at an Mm -hmm. ad 
the org company. So my thought was, let me climb the corporate ladder, run the corporate space of a large company. Not only that, I'll be representing as a Black woman, something that is not common in that space. So I really wanted to defy the odds in that sense. And I felt like I would be able to represent for my people, (laughs) you know what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. in the corporate space. So even though I do stuff for myself on the side, it was never my leading thought to do that alone. Hmm. Okay. That's, that's an interesting perspective. Cause you hear a lot of times people focus on like, you know, get in and, and, um, like get out, start your own business or go freelance or, or whatever. But you're saying like, you know, I wanted that security. I wanted to kind of climb up in an organization. And I think that's a, that's a good point to make because I, yeah. I feel like sometimes it almost, I don't want to say it's perceived negatively, but I think we're almost on this trend right now where it's like, don't have a corporate job. You know, you need to be, don't work for anybody but yourself constantly. (laughs) Well, well now my mindset is kind of changing, you know, Mm -hmm. it's probably evolving into a more common thing because even you and I talked about like the corporate space and, you know, Mm -hmm. the amount of people in the black community and and, and in the millennial generation who are, you know, pursuing entrepreneurship and the benefits of that. I think in the beginning, I had more of a mind of, like I said, wanting to be a CCO and all these things. But now I've been evolving more into long-term goals being to transition out most likely. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I am an advocate for, if nothing else, spending some time in corporate America, because there are a lot of skills that I feel like you do acquire and attain from Mm -hmm. having a corporate job and a lot of people like you mentioned you know either want to go full force entrepreneurship or you know they want to focus fully on corporate america and then do entrepreneurship but i really feel like there's a lot of value in really having your feet in both at the same time and Mm -hmm. um you know at my job that i do right now is the same thing that i do freelance and so like i tell people there's benefit in that because I'm pretty much getting paid to get better at what I do on the side. And there are a lot of things I learned from the large company that we work at, you Mm -hmm. know, that I probably would have never learned just working for myself. So I think there have been benefits and reasons probably at the time that I didn't know I was staying in corporate America for, but there are reasons why I'm here now that will benefit me in the long run. So, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I absolutely feel that because I know that before um, I, I entered the role that I'm in now, I was doing like a lot of freelance work and stuff myself um, outside of what I was doing at work because it was slightly different. And I was doing a lot of self-teaching of a lot of the concepts in UX and things that we do on a daily basis now. But I didn't really, I learned so much more actually now being in my role because you have real yeah. stakeholders, you have real deadlines. I'm collaborating with other people who do what I do, you know, and, and yeah. I'm having to constant, it's, it's different. I feel like when I was freelance, I was kind of like in a vacuum. It's kind of like, this is the way I do it. This is exactly. how things work. I was just saying, when you have to collaborate in a corporate space, it really forces you to adapt to different work styles and the oh, fast paced yes. <laughs> business of corporate America. Yeah, for sure. The thing for me is, that's probably the biggest thing for me is learning how to work with other people and the soft skills mm-hmm. that you build from that. Because 
really with the team that I'm on right now, I'm working with a bunch of other designers where in the same company on the previous team, it was just me. And Mm -hmm. I've been having to learn a different type of communication because the first team that I was on, I'm the only designer and there's one other girl who was doing marketing. So Mm -hmm. I'll do whatever I wanted as long as I meet deadlines. You know what I'm saying? It was kind of more space freedom. Now I'm having to go through all these people just to execute one small project. And they're wanting me to be in touch every little step of the way. And I'm like, oh, child. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. One is like, do you not trust my skill set? Because you want to see every little thing. I mean, I feel like I have a good enough understanding of this brand. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, it's just there, there are just those soft skills that you learn, i.e. for me, in this case, communication. But even, you know, this, mm-hmm. um, you know, building relationships, a lot of things that are beneficial that you learn from the corporate space that you probably, like you said, you probably wouldn't get in a freelance setting because you don't have to. And so now I'm able to be more professional as a black person in my business because of what Mm -hmm. I'm learning here. Because a lot of times too, you'll hear people stereotype, you know, their experience in working with black people. And number one, that's unfortunate. But number two, I'm able to make sure that I'm you know, being above reproach and setting a standard where you respect me and you don't sleep on me because of the quality of how I operate, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a high standard. And so I think that's really necessary. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know that I've, the quality and the processes that I use for my freelance work, or even for example, like this podcast, right? When I put this podcast together, I found myself doing the exact same type of like creative sprints and brand building activities. I do at work every day for my personal brand. And I, I approached it totally different than my brands that I had in the past before I had that experience because I I didn't have the tools. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, being this black creative, I know like you talked about like climbing up and, and being represented in the space, excuse me, where we're usually not. So um, how do you feel your identity as a black creative permeates into your work? Like I know um, I wrote an article on Medium a while back that talked about like having black people in your images and other ways that black creatives can kind of, you know, make their presence known, not just internally, but externally when you're working for like a marketing company. Yeah. So how do you feel like... Um, that your that identity permeates into your your work now. I'm very intentional, not just in my work, but in how I act within work, mm-hmm. like at work with my coworkers. I'm very intentionally black <laughs> because <laughs> I yes. make sure that I am disrupting your bias of what is pronounced correct or expected mm-hmm. in the workplace. So I am in mm-hmm. the same slang that I have, you know, in my regular life, within reason, I bring to work. You know what I'm saying? My same little sass or whatever, I bring that to work because I feel like we need to be breaking this standard of what quote unquote professionalism is, which is based mm-hmm. in majority culture for one. But number two, it's not, I think people are uncomfortable by what's different not because it's wrong, because it's just that it's different. And so Mm -hmm. I'm intentional to bring that. But in my work specifically, I was having to talk with um, my boss today and he was asking me, you know, 
a similar question to this. And he was basically like, you know, I had to explain to him when I'm doing work and when I'm doing assignments on purpose, I will not, I will use a non-white person. Like if I'm making an illustration, mm-hmm. if I'm doing photography, you will pretty much never see me using a white person. That is on purpose. Mm-hmm. And he asked if he, um, if I was doing that because of the lack of representation, I said, yes, I feel like I need to make sure Absolutely. that we are always being represented. Like when I make my illustrations, you're going to see a girl with natural hair in that illustration. Why? Because I know that you won't do it. And I know because you're not yes. about it. And so mm-hmm. the little things that matter, because we don't realize how much visual representation plays a part in customer experience, because people yes. get that brand loyalty is the number one factor that plays in long-term revenue for a brand because people operate on brand loyalty. When you have a a brand Mm -hmm. or product that you interact with and you continuously have a good experience with them, 9.9 times out of 10, you're going to, that's going to be your default. And so a big part of that is not only the quality of the product itself, but the experience, the representation, a culmination of things. So I want to make sure that in the area of control that I have, I want to make sure that I'm being intentional with representing, you know, black people, different hairstyles, even non-white people, or just all people of color, really. But um, mm-hmm. because of, you know, the roots of in the foundations of America, the biggest divide is black and white. So nothing else. I will always lead with black. But I also want to make sure that I'm being intentional with all forms of, you know, minority representation. Yes. And I, I see that like when we have had the opportunity to like collaborate together and stuff and yeah. on projects at work, like I'm always committing you because you you are very black in your work. And I love it because like you said, if you don't do it, who is going to do it? If we don't place ourselves in these images, if we don't yeah. choose stock photos that represent us and other people of color, who is going to do it when you're on a team of, you know, non people of color, pretty much, exactly. you know. Yeah. And it's default no matter, how, no matter, you know, how much, you know, other people may think that they're trying. It's like they're mm-hmm. to it because, you know, then we go into, okay, you picked the, you picked the black girl, but her hair is janky. And you know what? You can't yes. recognize that because you were so focused on the skin color that you mm-hmm. missed the fact that her hair looked messed up. So guess what? You're representing us badly. <laughs> and mm-hmm. We can't have that. So yeah, I'm also going to be intentional. That's, I told I I mentioned like if you if I ever use a non person of color it's because I literally could not find anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm very intentional with that in my work, and I will continue to do so because I know that it's not there and not. Unfortunately, there is this unspoken pressure too that we put on ourselves, or I put on myself to make sure that I'm doing that so that I can fight for representation for, you know, my community in the avenues that I'm able to. So it's necessary. And will it ever be, will there ever be enough? I doubt it, but I'm going to do my part, you know, in the ways that I can. Yes. Yes. And I I feel like everything helps, like every little bit, every illustration, every time that you can go with a different image. I wish that like in my role, I could be more intentional about some of that, you know, but with words, it's not as yeah. clear cut as right. like choosing an image. Um, but I feel like every bit helps. So 
kind of piggybacking on language, one thing that I've noticed in a lot of our conversations is how intentional you are about the language that you use to describe the challenges we face in the Black community. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like, period, when you're communicating to us, about us, mm-hmm. to non-Black people. So can you speak more about the importance of language and being descriptive when communicating to non-Black folks who may be averse to what you may be saying, yeah. to non-Black people who are still people of color but they're not black and to potential allies yeah communication is really important people don't realize how biased we are and how we communicate and people can sometimes undermine areas of importance in how they communicate Mm. and there are things that can easily be overlooked because it's not being communicated correctly and it can also be offensive. You know what I'm saying? Because it's communicated incorrectly. So I think there are a couple of different categories with this. So for, I'll start with one, when I'm um, communicating verbally at work or like, you know, in um, our software of communication, you know, I will use my little slang terms, (laughs) you know, whenever Mm -hmm. I'm responding. So I'll say like, oh yeah, that was dope. Or, you know, period or that part or you know just things like that like you know yeah I'll, I'll, I'll even use girl at work like people probably have you know their thoughts on what is and isn't right or wrong like I said I'm here to disrupt mm-hmm. so you know and not only that let's also talk about African-American vernacular English and how that is actually yes. considered a language so a lot yes. of isms that are considered um illiterate are it's a real language that needs to be respected. Yes. And so yes. I will use those slangs and isms to get people comfortable or get them adjusted in, in, in some way to a new norm. It may catch them off guard initially, but the more you hear me saying it, the girl that comes in after me or the guy that comes in after me, it won't be as new to you. And Mm -hmm. more of a freedom to express themselves whether they need to, because if we're going to talk about representation and acceptance and whatever, we have to start allowing that and creating space for that. So Mm -hmm. verbally, I will use my slang. Even, you know, I've had, I addressed my team at work, you know, when certain things are being said that make you feel like it's a different from your norm or outside of your norm, ask yourself, Am I responding this way because it's wrong or because it's different? And so I will Mm -hmm. challenge anyone around me that if I say something that makes you uncomfortable and I'm not breaking the rules, ask yourself, is it wrong or is it just different? And I think there's a lot of space, a lot of space and a lot of grace right now to be even more, um, I guess, even more black than the norm because of the social climate right now. So yes. people are a lot more accepting. And so it's like, while that while that bar is down, I'm going to push it as far as I can. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Things, because right now, it, right now, there's just the space for that. And I would even encourage anyone else, like, because this climate right now, I think you, there's a lot more space than normal to push your Blackness, even in the corporate space. But that'll be the verbal side. And then when it comes to um, on the written side, I'm not a content writer, but I will say that I've observed situations where people will, like I said, undermine things that are important or 
won't address them in the proper way or will try to say things Mm -hmm. just to make it seem like they know what's going on. And so I think when we're having conversations through text, that's something that also has to be considered, like what things are really important. I think it's difficult for me to give um, a specific example for that because it really just, you know, really does depend on the situation. And I haven't had as many personal experiences with written when it's when it comes to like um how someone's talking to me but I do know that I've had to be more cautious in how I say things because it can be perceived as coming off strong or coming off you know mm-hmm. offensive so I think when it's uh, yeah. part of it that's another thing where it's not so much what's being said to me but it's what I'm saying to someone else and so that I probably had a lot more experience in that realm. I, one thing that just stood out is like, and we talked about this at work too, mm-hmm. saying things that are considered offensive and being categorized as that angry black woman. Oh, yeah. And I know to fight against that, um, sometimes there's a lot of hesitation to say anything because you have to get it out a particular way and it has to be timely and contribute to the conversation at the perfect time to get your message across and and I hate that we have to do that but sometimes that's the way we have to navigate conversations yes definitely because even with that I find myself 100% of the time having to preface what I'm about to say with some little pat on the back or not to be offensive or I'm saying this in love and also kind of, mm-hmm. you know, because I know that I can come off strong, you know, that's just how I was raised talking. You know, I'm very direct. I can be very strong and that can be offensive. So and not only that, that whole strong black woman thing is also, it's such a false stereotype that I think is part of the problem because mm-hmm. you're, you're really, it's really, it can, depending on how you look at it, it really can kind of be a shot too, because you're saying that I always have this thing on and it's not okay for me to be reserved. It's not okay for me to be quiet. It's not okay for me to be the opposite because you're automatically Mm -hmm. assuming that if I am speaking directly, I'm too strong. But if I'm too Mm -hmm. quiet, have this, you already kind of have this expectation that I should be direct. So Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword in a sense too, but I'd always have to be mindful of what I'm saying. And I spend more time thinking about what I'm going to (laughs) say than actually Mm -hmm. talking because I got to figure out how it's going to be perceived. What words can I use that I know will make you comfortable? And I'm constantly having to suppress myself to make you comfortable. And that's part of the problem. I shouldn't have to always approaching a conversation in a way that makes someone else comfortable. And so that's a thing that often happens, you know, in the workspace in general. And I think another part of it too is even being considered to use my voice. I've observed that one thing that Mm -hmm. can happen in larger, you know, spaces is that everybody else is so busy talking. They haven't even left space for me to want to people. If we're having a conversation, you know, with the racial climate that we're in right now, a lot of people are talking about diversity and inclusion. And Mm -hmm. if we're having a conversation about diversity and inclusion, don't you think that you should want me to say something? 
because I yes. represent the exact person who's the center of the conversation that you're having. So if a bunch of white people or people in majority culture are having this conversation about people of color, how to put the people of color, don't you think you should want to hear my voice? But because of ego, pride, all the things, it's like there's this constant battle to talk. And then there's not even any space for me to interject because I'm already having to suppress myself in the situation because I know the preconceived notions that you might have about me. Yes. But after that, there's no space or let alone care to hear what I have to say. And on top of being black, I'm also a woman. So there's that complex in the workplace too that has to yes. be is being female as well. And, you know, patriarchy and, you know, the hierarchy of that. So I think that I'm always having to consider myself and what I say. And I have to make sure that if something, if I'm in the middle of a conversation or a meeting where, you know, I'm being emotionally affected, I have to suppress myself to make sure that I don't respond <laughs> overtly. Or, not, or I have to sandwich my genuine feeling inside of some jokes. So I'm having to like make a joke, then say how I mm-hmm. feel, then close with a joke or close with the patting you on the back to make sure that you aren't offended by what I had, mm-hmm. in the, which is how I really feel. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot. It's unnecessary. Unfortunately, I've gotten more accustomed to it than I would like, but it's also draining. So it's been a lot. Yes. I mean, and that I'm, I'm with you on that, having had similar experiences and, and it's exhausting. Yes. It's exhausting to have, have to navigate that. And I know that a lot of people will kind of hear this and say like, oh, well, you know, that's why I'm, I'm bucking. I'm getting out the system. <laughs> I'm, you know, I don't want to stay in corporate America. But I, I think it's important. I know that we can't all leave and go and be entrepreneurs. Somebody yeah. has to stay. Yeah. And, and get go through the path so that other Black creatives don't have to go through the same thing exactly. that we're going through. So that they can have an easier path. Because and if we all keep leaving and just say, you know, forget it, I'm just going to go do my own thing, yeah. then what happens to the person who comes after you? And as, exactly. as much as a, a lot, I know we want to rebuild Black Wall Street and there are so many movements for it. You know, we live in a, a multiracial society. Yeah. You know, interracial dating is more prevalent. So this Black utopia we all want is not necessarily going to happen. So we have to learn how to coexist with other races. Like you, we can't all just like go with these black separatist ideas and think like we're, we're just going to go and have our mm-hmm. own business and, and not collaborate. And even if you are an entrepreneur, even if you go and you have your own business, most of the time you have um, the, the best way somebody put it towards for me. is like when you work for someone in corporate, you have one boss, you have one client. Yeah. When you have, when you're working for yourself, you have several clients. So all of those clients aren't necessarily going to be black. And unfortunately, you know, because we've had all of these situations in the past with discrimination that we don't have the generational wealth yet, a lot of times you have to go into these places where we're not and do business exactly. with the oppressor yeah. so that we can get ahead. And so you're still going to have to adapt. You're still going to find yourself suppressing certain things because you have to manage and get through this interaction with this client. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's just a corporate America thing. It's a it's a being Black and being a professional thing. Exactly. It's totally a being a Black thing. And it depends on your mindset because if you look at it as leveraging or using this person to get what you need, 
you got to do that. But it's all about how you yes. think about it. Because if you think about it as me succumbing to the oppressor, well, yeah, that, that mindset will take you out. But if you think of, yes. of it as you think you're using me, but I'm actually using you to get above you, <laughs> then, you know, mm-hmm. you have a different mindset. We have to, you know, even think about our ancestors and like what they endured. They mm-hmm. knew that they only had X amount of years on this planet, but they also had legacy in mind. And I think if we operate with legacy in mind, we have mm-hmm. to remember our lives are not just about ourselves. We live our lives not just for our own, yes. but for the next person. You know, Absolutely. as parents, it's easy for them to think about like, you know, all that I do, I'm doing for my kid. You know what I'm saying? And we have to have that mm-hmm. same mindset as a community. All that I'm doing I'm doing for the next black person's coming behind me. You know, I don't have kids, but I'm thinking about the next generation of black people. Those in a sense are my kids. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so I need to make sure that I'm doing what I can for them. And like you said, we have to be mindful of that and be, be aware of that black separatist mindset. Because at the end of the day, you know, even though we are the minority and there's, you know, a majority of people, like there's, it's practically impossible to, in a white-led nation where we live to mm-hmm. think that you're going to get the one up. There aren't even enough of us in number <laughs> to, yes. to really, you know, do that. And so I think we have to think realistically about this. And there, and there are ways you can manipulate the system and use them to get what you need. It's just leverage your mm-hmm. opportunity. That's really all you have to think about it as. And so I think about that too. Like you said, you know, some people are called to entrepreneurship and some people are not. And it all depends on your mindset and what you're thinking about. If you're thinking about yourself, if you have a self-centered strategy or a self-centered focus, number one, even that business will probably not sustain itself, but your long mm-hmm. will not be beneficial. And so some people will be called to endure that corporate space. And as long as you know your why, you'll be able to stay in it. And so I think everybody has yeah. to assess like, you know, number one, what's my purpose? What do I feel like? I'm called to do, and it may not even be limited to like, oh, I'm called to design. Like, no, I'm called to pave the way for my people. And mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And so once you define that, then always keep that why in the back of your mind as you're moving forward. So then you'll be able to endure, you know, the BS and, you know, whatever. So I think there are, you know, levels to everything. And so we just have to be mindful of that. And not only that, it's like, if we're all entrepreneurs, who's going to be the owner of the industry that you're an entrepreneur in? Because at the end of the day, the owners of these industries are the top people at these big businesses. So you you might have you, you know, you might have you a, uh, what, a car company but who owns all the cars? You know what I mean? Yes. Like, so then at the end of the day, you still working for the man in a way that you're not even thinking about. So I think right. there has to be people in corporate space to climb the corporate ladder to get to a place of ownership. So people limit ownership to, oh, I just own this business. No, dude, but do you own the product? <laughs> like, do you own the yes. foundation that got you in that business? And so we have to think, we got to think big picture. You know, we can't just be finite in our thinking. Yes, that those are excellent points because that like it, one way or another, 
you're going unless we own every single thing down to the actual materials the plastic that is included in the vehicle that you are and you own the dealership where they will be sold and you own the person you know you have to get very granular and the fact is we just cannot operate in that way i mean and and again and we're not we're not in the time where this is like we're coming out of slavery and the majority of, you know, white people are trying to kill black folks. You know, we have a lot of allies, allies out here. Yeah. You know, it's okay to, to work with white people, <laughs> you know? And you, like I said, you can use that to your benefit because there are white people yes. now who they want to help. Think about the Freedom Riders. Do you know how many Freedom Riders? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes. If you think that we got here by ourselves, you are sadly mistaken. And so I yes. think, and like Charlemagne said, you know, I love Charlemagne the God. He's talking mm-hmm. about, you know, using your privilege to combat prejudice. And I think there are white people who are willing to do that. You know, I'm not like, mm-hmm. I'm not... So I'm not backing up white people right now, but I'm just saying it's called leveraging your it's leveraging yes. what you have and leveraging your opportunity. So if you have a white person who want to help you, you better use them for everything they got in love, obviously, but use them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, one thing I'm loving right now that's been happening with the protests that have been on and off since the killing of George Floyd, murder of George Floyd, um, (laughs) the brutal murder uh, that was televised for the world to see, which is absurd. I'm not. Yes. A whole nother episode for that. But um, one thing I'm noticing is that the strategies that have been used in these protests, um, I have a a friend back home who's leading protests in my home Mm -hmm. city. And she has been using the white allies on the front lines. And I think that's such a smart strategy. And all of the black protesters and other protesters of color are behind them because these officers are going to be less violent (laughs) to them than to us. And so that I think that's just a perfect physical example of what you're talking about. That's so good. I actually did not know that was happening. I think that's really good. And that's that's dope to even be thinking that way. It's the thing. It's like you mm-hmm. as your shield. And if somebody who's willing to be your shield, child, yes. you take that. You better take that. Literally. <laughs> literally, physically, you can take these. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you better. I mean, you owe me anyway. So <laughs> you look. And do everything you can. If it if it if it weren't you, it was your great 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 grandfather. Somebody exactly. was racist. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so kind of, that kind of is a perfect segue into um, the next part of our conversation. I really, from the moment that we started, like kind of talking, I have admired how active you are, um, just fighting for Black lives, Black civil rights. I know that you've done work in the community. You protest, you march, you fight for clearing criminal records of innocent black men and women. So can you talk more about when you got started into more of these initiatives? What got you started and, you know, what what you're doing? Yeah, I think I just I come from a proud black family. (laughs) Like my dad, Mm -hmm. you know, he is so pro black, like all of the black history stuff that unfortunately many black people are just now learning. I think the shock was black wall street and how many black people didn't know about that. Yes. That shocked me too. That especially learning from a TV show. I'm like, come on y'all. Wow. I was super shocked, but all those black facts I knew from my dad because he, you know, is like I said, very pro black and 
you know, just coming from that environment was really helpful for me. And then I think part of it too is my personality also. I'm a pretty mm-hmm. bold person. I'm a very chill person, like, you know, when I'm off, but I'm actually, I'm not shy at all. I've always been kind of bold. I've always been upfront, always been vocal. You know what I'm saying? If I wanted something, I'm going you know, to tell you, or if I need to do something, I'm going to go do it kind of thing. And then even just being, um, I guess if I always had that, like that leader and advocate trait about me, so I would say part of it is just my personality. But as far mm-hmm. as being vocal with the Black community, I would say most prominently, because I, I grew up in a predominantly Black environment. So, you know, Black church, um, predominantly Black school. I spent some time in a predominantly white school. But by the time I graduated high school, my school was, you know, predominantly Black. And so mm-hmm. I have been in an environment where my people have for the most part been celebrated. And when I was in college, the Trayvon Martin stuff went down. And Mm. I think that was my introduction to this concept of, you know, advocacy and protesting and rights Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. And that was what, 2012, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. So we had protests on a campus. I went to UGA, so it's a predominantly white institution. And I think, and I also, actually, I went there on purpose, just kind of a side note, because growing up in a predominantly black community, I wanted the, I, I feel like I, I feel like I have my roots in black pride. So I wanted to put myself mm-hmm. in an environment where that represented real life in America, where I would be the yeah. minority. And so I wanted to, you know, spend some time in that, even though I'll spend the rest of my life in that. I really just wanted to have my introduction to that be in college. So Trayvon Martin stuff went down. We did protesting and, you know, I was in pretty much all the black student organizations and um, there was like a lot of backlash. We would get, you know, calling people calling us the N word and, you know, mm. going back to go back to where you came from. And we just all, just all the, all the nonsense. Wow. And, that was my probably my introduction to it. And then I continued that throughout school. After school, I got involved with a couple of different organizations, you know, for racial reconciliation, you know, and spent some time um, serving those. I actually was on the founding team for one of them. And the whole, you know, point of it was doing the work of racial unity. So really it was more of like on a oneness mm-hmm. front, but I always, my whole point in doing that was to fight for my people. And so this organization was faith-based. So of course I had the oneness front, but I was always, you know, the root for me of it was freedom and rights for black people and you, you know, mm-hmm. black people doing what they need to do for the black community. So that was that. And then really it just got to a point where just the consistent injustices, the lynchings, the you know, murders, the rapings, the all the things, just after a moment, you just get tired and you like, know what? Yes. I this. I'm tired of it. <laughs> so I think that's ultimately what got me to where I am now. Just the constant stories. You know, my little brother, we were both, I have two brothers, my older and younger brother, but most of my younger brother, he's had several run-ins, unfortunate experiences with the police, you know, holding a gun mm. in your head, you know, being um, just treated so negatively by white cops and all of that stuff just infuriated me. And so I decided like, look, 
what we're not going to do is that. And so I think as right. the curtain started to be, to be more pulled back, even more so, you know, after the 2016 election, I was like, I could see all of the uproar that was happening. I knew that it was important for me to stand firm in my Blackness, you know, throughout all that stuff. And so really excited with Trayvon Martin and then all the consistent events after that. And then really just me getting tired. And I think this year <laughs> it was even just put the icing on the cake for that. And I was like, look, I'm going to be a lot more intentional about disrupting the corporate space, you know, with my blackness. Mm-hmm. And I've really been probably more intentional than ever this year. And so that's pretty much what my pathway has been. And, you know, I have family in um, Mississippi who mm-hmm. deal with a whole bunch of racial stuff out there. Yeah, I got family there too. I know. <laughs> the other half of my family is in Alabama. So my family has its roots, its roots in the deep South. Uh, yes. We can track back to like the late 1700s, I think, from the census. But um, pretty much have been there our entire lives. And actually, my dad's side of the family, who's in Mississippi, the the white people who have who we share a last name with come from the bloodline of people who owned us. And so it's like, mm-hmm. and those actually those same white people with that last name, they're the ones who are the Congress people and have their names on billboards. Now, I, I, even though I love my family there, I hate going there because I'm just reminded mm-hmm. of the oppression of my people because we share your last name and y'all the ones out here thriving on my family still, you know, yes. and I hate it. And so I think just a culmination of events have just led me to say, look, enough. I'm going to use my voice and um, do what I can to speak out. And if nothing else, everywhere that I go, number one, you'll know that I'm Black. Number two, you'll know that I'm for Black people. <laughs> and you'll know that I'm going mm-hmm. to voice my opinion in whatever setting about it. Yes. Thinking thinking about that particularly, um, I know a lot of people may want to be more active um, and express their voices, especially at work. Mm-hmm. So how do you kind of balance that? Because, you know, a lot of people fear retaliation, right? They fear like, oh, if I if I speak up and I say something, I'm, I may lose my job, I may get rolled up, or they'll find some other passive or aggressive way to get rid of me yeah. and I won't be able to do anything. So how do you balance that and how do you reassure yourself? That's a great question. I have to know my worth as a person. So it wasn't until I started having the mindset of I don't care that I felt empowered to do more. Because if you are like, mm-hmm. you have the mindset of, I need to be here. If I lose, it's going to lose everything. You're going to step on eggshells, <laughs> number one. Yeah. Two, I stepped in. If, if there was a door that was even cracked open, I pushed it wide open and ran through it. Example, I think it was last year, my job was having you know one of its company meetings and there was a mention of diversity and inclusion. So the person who made that announcement was one of the people that are higher up in the company. I immediately reached out to them and asked to speak to them because you talked about it. So you, you open the door, <laughs> right? So you're talking about this, open the door. So therefore I am going to pursue that and I'm going to go on the door. I want to hear what you have to say. And then if you direct me somewhere else, I'm going to go to them too. So that one conversation opened the door to like three other people who I also reached out to. And that led me to, you know, being on our, our D&I team at work and um, 
you know, just any time where a person has said something, particularly a white person has said something about DNI or or black or anything, anything having to do with diversity and inclusion, I will reach out to them and have a conversation. And the, and the good part about it is because we work for, you know, a larger company, the people who are going to be talking those things are going to be people who are higher up. So I'm yeah. going to reach out to you. We're going to build a good rapport. And therefore now we've built a good rapport. So I'm in good ties with you. So I know that if I'm good with you, who cares about what somebody who is one above me is going to say, because I've already right. built rapport with people at the top. Not only that, they've expressed interest because you've been talking about it. So mm-hmm. I really think it's just cultivating connections and relationships. Networking um, is, even though I am an extreme introvert, I've always been a big networker in the business space. And I think that's been mm-hmm. that helped me and that's reassured me as well. Because I know that I'm cultivating relationships with as many people as possible. Not to not to be vindictive or not to use them, but really to, like I said, get freedom, progress, things for my people. I ain't even trying to, yes. so I don't plan on being here for 20 years, so I ain't trying to take your job. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's kind of the approach that I have. And then I think that's what helps me to be reassured. In addition to that, just making sure that I'm doing my job well. So that mm-hmm. you can't use my involvement in this as an excuse, you know, or saying that it's a distraction for me. I, you know, even though it's double mm-hmm. the work, I just make sure that I'm doing my job well. And then outside of that, I'm interacting with and building rapport with the people that I need to in order to get whatever it is that I'm trying to get, you know, for mm-hmm. the Black community. So I would just encourage people to build relationships you know, build relationships with people that you work directly with. And then if you ever feel like there is an open door to um, build relationships with somebody who's above you, then, you know, walk through that door. And one lady, she actually is um, in the C, she's a black lady. She's in the C-suite of a large company in Ohio. And she um, gives me some great advice. One thing that she said was, whenever you have a conversation with, um, like say for instance, if somebody, if a white person at at a company who were to say something about DNI, you make sure that you let them do all the talking and you ask questions as if you don't know anything. That way you make mm-hmm. them feel empowered to think they're educating you. And if they think they're educating you, their ego is being filled and they end up loving you by <laughs> that conversation. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I was able to teach her this and tell her this and all these things. And you ask questions and you let them talk, honey. I don't care if you know everything they've already said, let them talk. And just, you know, you yes man them and, you know, you just, you encourage what they're saying, especially in the first couple of conversations. Mm. Like I said, you're building rapport. So, you know, me not, um, not busting the scenes and saying, look, y'all don't know anything. Let me teach you. You can't go through <laughs> right. that mindset. Like, you know what I'm saying? You have to just, you know, prance your way into the room and just, you know, unfortunately, we have to make sure everybody else is comfortable first. And then mm-hmm. like leveraging is just, it's just all a part of playing your cards right. And let's be real. That's just how business is done. That's how people operate. That's just human behavior. Everything's mm-hmm. about playing your cards right. Not even just in business, in life. So, you know, that's really been my approach to that. And I stay reassured because like I said, I've done my job right. 
and I build relationships and I try to serve people well. And I think people can sense, you know, my the genuineness in my heart because I am genuine. I'm not going into, like I said, being malicious or vindictive, you know, yeah. with an ulterior motive because discernment is real. People can peep game. Yeah, so that's so true. You just have to be genuine with it. And I think, you know, the process will play itself out. Yes, th- those are all excellent points and you know and we talked about this a little bit earlier too but white fragility is real (laughs) and you you have to um unfortunately you have to kind of tiptoe around some things and kind of let them have that Mm -hmm. that self-discovery and and feel like they did a good job and they get they can get a cookie Mm -hmm. um because they learned a new word about diversity today (laughs) you know um and they recognize some of their own biases today so good for them because they're making progress right and you just sit right there and you smile and (laughs) that's the thing it's like (laughs) i'll i'll smile in front of you but best believe i'm gonna go have a conversation about how i really feel and vent at some point. And I think that's why it's also important to have people that you can have these conversations with. Cause mm-hmm. I'm gonna make sure that I can at least communicate my real feelings somewhere, even if I have to protect yes. myself in the current yes. thing. Cope we need we need coping strategies. Oh, yeah. Because I think and I, I've had a lot of conversations with this a lot about this a lot lately, is that I think one of the biggest failures of the there are many failures to the American education system yeah um, especially when it comes to history and black history but I think one of the biggest failures is convincing children that we live in a post-racial society we go back and we think that like when growing up we thought that reading about you know Martin Luther King of course they love MLK no shade to MLK but there are so many other prominent (laughs) black people yes (laughs) so um but you know they they taught us MLK and his struggles um I grew up in Arkansas so we learned about Little Rock Central 9 and their struggles Um, and you know after that it's just like and then racism went away and now you can go out and get a job right. and be happy and you have the American dream. And it's right. not into well into you you get into your late teenage years and your early adulthood where you realize like, oh, no, it's still racist. Then you get into your 20s and you're like, oh, this shit real racist. Oh, like this week, this is for racist for real. Like people for still real. out here doing the same racist stuff they were doing. <laughs> it's all, you know, been decades happening. ago. It's always been happening. It's just yes. of social media. Now y'all can see it. We've been trying to tell y'all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long, but you just never got it. And now because it's on video, you can see it. And not only that, you still have those people who, even though they can watch it with their own eyes, they still think it ain't a thing. But I'm not even yes. entertain that. But I'm just like, yes, it's real. And, and it's unfortunate because it affects how Black people become as they grow. Because not only that, your introduction to Black history is slavery. Therefore, yes. your roots will then be oppression. And so mm-hmm. you'll go into it sad. And then you learn about these MLK and some people, but you also feel like it's so far removed that it's not relatable. And then, mm-hmm. you know, so, oh yeah, the civil rights era, that was, you know, 200 years ago. Like, you know, people think that. I know it wasn't. People think, oh, this was like 200 years ago. Right. It's so far removed. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? And so they... It, it becomes distant. And like you said, they think that it's gone. Not only that, it's it, it's not only it's still present, but the height of it is still so recent. I was explaining to some co-workers the other day, and I said on this um this video I recorded for this this other group, I was explaining to them, like, 
Harriet Tubman, we act like the Underground Railroad was in 1619. You know what I'm saying? Like Harriet Mm -hmm. Tubman died in 1913. My Mm -hmm. mother's grandmother was very much alive very much she wasn't a baby <laughs> when Harriet Tubman was alive. They were up and they were alive at the same time. And we I like Harriet Tubman is so distant. And so mm-hmm. we lose sight of, you know, our black history. But not only that, like I said, you know, so we go into we go into learning about black history with slavery, thinking it's oppression, but we don't know the real roots of our history and the power that we come from. And so I think it affects how people grow, <clears throat> excuse me, in their blackness because you learn about black history starting at slavery, forgetting about mm-hmm. Master Musa, who was like the richest man pretty much ever. Yes, <laughs> and, ever. You know what I mean? And so it's like, we have to realize not only that racism is still present, but we have to be reminded of the power that we have and our resilience as well. And so I think mm-hmm. that, learning both sides of it will help us to be balanced in how we operate and to not be so torn down that we give up, you know, when these things Mm -hmm. continue to happen. So I think it's a two way street with that. Like we, yes, know that racism has always been happening. It will continue to happen, but that we come from positions of power. You know know what I'm saying? Like, Mm-hmm. <laughs> forget about you know Egypt and you know those roots so mm-hmm. yeah I think I think that's super important like that definitely think beyond slavery and I think that goes for regardless of if you're of the ideology that we all came from Africa or if you think we're all yeah. Moors and we came from the Americas like regardless the the point is we were a living breathing thriving yes culture yes. before we were enslaved and and people tend and i feel like there's such a misconception that we were enslaved because we were weak no we were enslaved because we were kind and we were trusting well we were we were forced here too now, i always i always think about like the colonizer, colonizers right though yeah initially when they approached us uh, being the people that we are tribally yeah you know we didn't immediately think okay these people are coming to take and take and we need to defend ourselves yeah you know you hear stories over and over again with the native americans with the hispanics as well that you know we're a lot of people of color we have we're we're kind people (laughs) so we trust these these people and then they exploit us Mm -hmm. and then they take our resources yeah. and then they make us resources. Yeah. And our roots, that's the thing too, that I think is important. And the foundations of black culture is rooted in community and yes. in the diaspora is rooted in com- community In European culture. It's really rooted in individualism. Mm-hmm. And so that really shows itself in how we operate. And I think it's great for us, but like you said, it's also gotten us in a lot of trouble. And so mm-hmm. I think that's all something that's, that's important to remember is like we're rooted in community. And so it's just important to, for us to do life together, for us to, you know, not go it alone and all those things. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important that we remember that too, because yeah. we've been so indoctrinated into Western culture. Mm-hmm. We are African-Americans and yeah. 
I think it's just as much emphasis on the American part than the African part. Because if you ever talk to, uh, you know, someone who's just African, you will see the differences in our cultures and our values. And I I think it's important to know how much we've uh, kind of bought into that Americanized way of thinking with individualism uh, because we were indoctrinated into that culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Trevor Noah does a phenomenal interview on The Breakfast Club where he was basically saying that the thing that breaks his heart the most when um, in like living in America is basically seeing how much black people don't know their history and their culture and where they come from. Like they mm-hmm. don't know their home because we don't know, we we can't directly relate or we haven't directly adapted to or cultivated the roots of, you know, our African homeland <laughs> because we don't know it. Yeah. And so there, we, don't know. we mm-hmm. immediately retreat to, you know, colonialized Americanism and, that's how we operate. And so we don't know mm-hmm. that other part of ourselves and it shows, you know, in what we do. And there are so many in deeply ingrained roots and lies that we believe and live from that we don't even realize because of colonialism, Americanism, you know, being rooted in mm-hmm. just European culture. And so it's sad, but I really hope that, you know, we can really unlearn a lot of these biases that we operate from that we don't even realize. And yeah, it'll be uncomfortable because when you've known something for your whole life to try to learn something different will be uncomfortable and it will be different. Mm -hmm. And you might think that it's wrong, but we have to unlearn these biases and really develop a global perspective and relearn history from a a global perspective when it comes to our roots. And that's one of my biggest goals. I've been to other continents, but I haven't been able to make it to Africa yet. (laughs) And, you know, Mm -hmm. one of my biggest goals, Lord willing, if COVID ever lifts to a good enough place. Look, come on now. (laughs) It's a goal to, you know, the motherland, like not the South Africa, Mm -hmm. like take me to West Africa, because I can assure you my roots lie somewhere in West Africa. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, just to go there and be immersed in that culture. Cause ultimately that's where I come from. And so mm-hmm. I want to know some part of that. I don't know what part I come from, but I want to know some part of that. So I can, like I said, unlearn and relearn things that need to be adjusted. Yes. And I'm, I'm so glad that that awakening is happening again. Like I know oh, yeah. we kind of went through this before with like Marcus Garvey yeah. and a lot of his ideologies. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that we, we got Malcolm X yeah. who was raised off of uh, Marcus Garvey's ideologies. And then we kind of had MLK that kind of eclipsed <laughs> a lot of that. I mean, and I, I know it's not going to throw a lot of shade to MLK. I have much respect <laughs> yeah. for that man and his work, but it's just like they're, they're, they're you know, it's that's a whole nother episode we'll yeah. get to. <laughs> but you know, I feel like that that was the clips and we kind of just started focusing on assimilating and, you know, trying to just fit into the, the culture so that yeah. we could survive. And I feel like we're at the point now where we're we're making a pivot and it's more so like, you know what, we define the culture anyway, yeah. really. So like, let's, let's go ahead and change this up. And, and I'm loving the anti-code switch movement that's oh, starting yes. to happen as well. Um, and it's like a nod to your point earlier about AAVE. And I'm going, I'm glad you mentioned that because I need to make that an entire 
episode on its oh, own, yes. especially with my background being in language. Yeah. Um, definitely have to talk about that. Yeah. You should get somebody from uh, like South Carolina or the, you know, Gullah area or something. Yes. Get yes. That would be dope. But no, like you said, it is so important. And, you know, there were, you know, there were things that both Malcolm X and MLK, you know, were wanting to do that I agree and disagree with. So there's no kind of just like both extremes of different ends. And so Mm -hmm. I think that, like you said, we, I'm glad that there has been kind of a reawakening and um, a desire. I think, you know, the year of the return helped a lot of people went to Ghana and, you know, got some, got immersed in some culture and that's dope. So I just hope that we can continue to, you know, be awakened, feel empowered, want to learn more, you know, want to surround ourselves around our people, want to be proud, like not feel pressured. You know, I, I hope that, you know, a door has been open to continue to do more. And that's why I think it's important for those who currently already do have that awakening or are for maybe further along to be bold in that, but also to, you know, encourage that from their, uh, from those around us. It's, because since we are community minded, mm-hmm. you know, we have the power to impact everyone around us. And luckily my community of people <laughs> is very, you know, mm-hmm. pro-black. I have some black friends who grew up in predominantly white environments. And so they're learning, but the good part about that is they're learning. And so they're willing to learn, so yes. they're able to build or cultivate or, you know, or develop, you know, black people who are more in tune with their blackness and it doesn't make them any less of anything else. It's just teaching you more mm-hmm. about who you already are and who you've always been. And so just without this little fake colonized filter, you know what I mean? Right. And so I'm here for it. Like I said, I always do my part. I'm here for it. I'm going to always encourage it. And um, yeah, I'm like, let's, let's do what we got to do to keep this thing going. Right. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. So on that note, I'm going to wrap us up. I know you've already shared so like much helpful information and I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people and given them something to chew on. Um, Lastly, what advice do you have for aspiring black professionals who are looking to be more active inside and outside of the workplace as a black activist? I would say to first know your truth, because the thing is you have to first know something in order to believe it. And so when you believe Mm -hmm. it, then you act on it. And as you continue to act on it, it becomes who you are, but it first starts with knowing it. So I would say start with knowing your truth. And as you do that, then it'll become who you are and it'll naturally ooze out of you. You know what I mean? And so that would be my, you know, overall advice when it comes to, you know, being involved in the workplace. Because once you know your truth, you can't turn that off. You know what I mean? And so you'll mm-hmm. you'll feel empowered in that. And then um, build connection, you know, take advantage of the opportunity to leverage. And a lot of people like to do their job and go home. Like mm-hmm. I said, we don't just live our lives for ourselves. We live it for the people who would be impacted by our decisions, which are the people who come after us. So as long as we 
remove ourselves from the situation and have legacy in mind at all times, it'll really keep us from, you know, being discouraged or just want to do our, do our work and leave. Like it's not just about you. So I think having an others focused um, mindset is also beneficial in the workplace. And then when it comes to building connections, cause it, it really is all about who, you know, so in the workplace, mm-hmm. build connections and then, yeah, outside of work, um, I would say surround yourself with like-minded people. If you mm. have this vision or this goal or these aspirations to, you know, advocate more or do more for the Black community or, you know, grow in your Blackness or do more and, you know, all these things, surround yourself with like-minded people because, you are who you hang around. Like I said, my whole community of women are all, we're all extremely similar in those core values of our blackness, of mm-hmm. women empowerment and um, our, in our faith. And so we, we hold those same core values. So we will always be able to, I don't have to worry about losing my blackness. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I will never, right. never be an issue because of who I surround myself with. So like I said, because, we're naturally community-minded, community-oriented. Surround yourself with like-minded people because community is everything. Whether or not people believe that, community is everything. So that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, I think those are all excellent points. The people that you surround yourself with are so pivotal, yeah. so pivotal, um, especially if you're a spiritual person, mm-hmm. you know, and ha- knowing how important it is to protect your energy and to oh, be yeah. around like-minded individuals. And and when you are around someone who isn't necessarily like, you know, and when I say like-minded, I guess I, what I'm saying is not necessarily someone who agrees with everything you say. Exactly. But, yeah. And so I want to make that clear because I feel like sometimes people think like, oh, they need to think exactly like me. I think it's no. good to have people that can challenge your perspectives because you grow from exactly. challenge, being challenged. You definitely, yeah. and you should, we should all embrace that. We should yes. want to be better than we were the day before. So no, it's about constant growth. And the only way you grow is by being pushed outside of, you know, what you're used to. Yes. Yes, for mm-hmm. sure. For sure. Okay, now I know that you are not big on social media. (laughs) So how can people find you to keep pace with your journey as a as a black creative and a black activist? Oh, um, I mean, you can follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is private, and I don't get on it often. (laughs) Um, Like I said, I don't post. I don't post anything about design on social media. I probably most people around me don't even know what I do, (laughs) but um. But um, you can follow me on Instagram, Natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, Brianna, B-R-E-O-N-A-H. And yeah, that's my Instagram, Facebook. I'm really on there. Don't have Twitter, uh, you know, LinkedIn, I guess. You know, that's, that's probably, <laughs> I'm probably the worst person to find, but Instagram might be your best bet. If I am on there, everything I say is pretty much about the racial climate. <laughs> Well, I think I think that's that's important. So now y'all know if y'all want to talk to Natalie, you probably, you know, might have a chance to her reading your message. Yeah, I'll, I'll check Instagram eventually. You know, I was on there a couple weeks ago. So, yeah, that, that's that's probably the best. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And I know that's another conversation too, but I, I know we talked about this before you even came on the show, but I'm going to have to get you back for a million other well, conversations. Perfect. I'm here for a good conversation now. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to do it because I know that there are so many things that um, we can talk about. Oh, and I just respect so much that you speak freely. Sometimes I find yeah. people who are activists um, but they're closet activists, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. I'll talk. I'm cl- I'll talk about this in conversation at yeah. events, but I don't want to talk about it publicly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to participate in these initiatives at work. I don't want to, you know. And so, mm-hmm. and and I'm 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 like I'm kind of I'm similar to you in a sense that like I like to be involved at work how I can. Yeah. I'm very involved outside of work. I always try to find ways to represent my people in my creative work, yeah. just in general. So. I feel you on that. Hey, I'm here for it. Let's do it. Just let me know when you want me to come back, girl. I hope y'all enjoyed that conversation and found it insightful. I hope you felt seen. I hope you felt like you heard strategies that could work for you because I did and I am feeling fired up. As usual, I'm going to hit you with five key takeaways that I found from this conversation. Number one. Use a corporate job to develop soft skills and other skills where you may lack. So Nat and I both talked about the power of using your job to get where you need to go, learning, taking notes, connecting, adapting, all those things that you get from being in a live environment, collaborating with other creative and non-creative professionals. Number two, disrupt the workplace with intention as an act of resistance. So Nat spoke very specifically about being true to herself unapologetically, speaking in her native tongue to intentionally normalize marginalized language, and just not putting on that face, not code switching anymore, and just doing it as an act of intentional disruption to help create spaces, which goes into number three, operate with legacy in mind. Having a legacy-focused mindset will help you pave a path for those to come after you, regardless of If you want to be that representation, if you want to pave that path, a lot of time you are the person who ends up doing that just simply by being who you are in your space. Number four, cultivate relationships to secure yourself and insulate from any retaliation you could possibly receive from choosing to be unapologetically back in the workplace. And unfortunately, that's something that we still have to deal with sometimes, but times are changing. I am optimistic. Use those relationships to achieve freedom and make progress for your community. And number five, educate yourself on who you are and relearn history from a global perspective. So Nat spoke about her upbringing and how much she was educated. And she talked about some of her peers who did not have the same opportunity. So if you didn't have that opportunity or if there's still black history, there's always some black history that you can learn that you may not know. Take the time to educate yourself, research, relearn some things, unlearn some things and get that global knowledge so you can be a voice for your people. That's it. That's all I have for today. So glad you tuned in for another episode. As usual, I'm your girl, Jazz. Check out gear on blackexecutive.com. Look forward to catching you next time. Keep aspiring to inspire. Thanks for listening to another episode of Black Executive. If you enjoyed listening in on this convo, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Executive. Have something to add to the conversation? Visit blackexecutive.com to leave feedback and your thoughts could be featured on a later episode. While you're there, pick up your exclusive Black Executive gear and rep the culture. And spread the knowledge. If you know a Black creator trying to go pro, 
a corporate mogul looking to advance, or a cousin that's always hustling but never gets an idea going, drop them a link to the show. Until next time, keep aspiring to inspire. <laughs>